Welcome to Curious and Quirky. We believe curious leaders change the world. Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for another edition of Curious and Quirky. As you know, we are from Caltech Executive Education. We believe curious leaders change the world. This is a fast-paced take on what's hot in the business over the past month and brought through you through the lens of our course leaders, whether it's innovation, marketing strategy, brand innovation, or agility. So during the course of this session, please feel free to type in your comments on the LinkedIn Live page. We will feature them. We may even answer some of them towards the end of the show. I have one of the best jobs in the world because I get to introduce none other than Mary Abadzia. Mary, all yours. Thank you so much. So I have a question for you all. Are you one of the 15 million people that poured orange juice on your cereal or part of the 52 million that are willing to do so? So according to Wakefield Research, half the adults um, who did this said that they thought it would taste good, which really makes me wonder what the other half were thinking. So anyway, so Tropicana's recent press release said they are challenging consumers to prepare their minds and their cereal plates for an unforgettable breakfast experience. So their new cereal has uh, a smiling orange holding a spoon and then orange juice being poured over almond cereal and then they show a, a paper straw. And the Tropicana folks admit that this combination probably isn't for everyone, but it's worth a try. And by the way, this isn't the first time that they've done something like this and tried to break paradigms. The company launched a <laughs> orange-flavored toothpaste in partnership with the company Dynamic Blending Specialist to celebrate National Toothbrushing Day, which, by the way, is November 1st, fortunately, after Halloween. So, <laughs> so why is this my curious and quirky topic? And really, what does this have to do with your business? Well, I think it's really interesting that a company is stretching and thinking outside beyond their typical product boundaries, if you will. To be clear, a complementer is a product or a company that serves the same customer, but they, they provide um, something different and they address different customer needs. So sometimes there's another brand in your organization that you partner with to make it a broader experience for the customer. So for example, medical devices, there's often a lot of complementary devices for surgery and they can put that together to provide a full kit for the customer. Other times there's companies that partner like outside of their company or outside their industry. And Tom had shared one with us a couple of months ago where Amazon and Kohl's got together and struck a deal. So the partnership was that you could bring your returns back from buying on Amazon. You could bring them back to Kohl's. This deal increased Kohl's foot traffic by 2 million customers 
in 2020, and they probably sold a lot more merchandise. And it was great for Amazon because they didn't have to secure a physical location on their own. Tom referred to this as strange bedfellows. This type of complement or strategy is also called co-opetition. Uh, you partner with someone who is a traditional competitor. By the way, when I told my, my 16-year-old daughter, Sophia, about this topic, she said, oh, yeah, it's a collab, which is collaboration. And she immediately pulled up this site that said best and worst collabs. And her favorite was uh, McDonald's and the Travis Scott deal. So you can get the Travis Scott meal. He earned over $20 million. And McDonald's, according to Forbes, said that they were their sales were slumping. During the height of that lockdown, it had dropped 8.7%. When they introduced this new Travis Scott meal, their sales rose, so they gained 4.6, which is a delta of 12%, so definitely helped them. So collaboration could also be in the form of some type of a celebrity collaboration or deal. And we also looked at GoPro and Red Bull, uh, two of the world's greatest brands are cross-promoting and innovating together. GoPro is Red Bull's exclusive point-of-view camera and content provider, and this allows them to have access to 1,800 Red Bull events across more than 100 countries. So it's a great opportunity for both of them. I like what this, the founder and CEO of GoPro said. His, uh, his name is Nicholas Woodman, and he said, we share the same vision to inspire the world to live a bigger life. That is pretty cool. So if you're in a situation where you need to find interesting ways to grow your brand, you may consider some type of a complement or strategy. So it could be working with other brands within your organization. It could be working with what you typically would think of a traditional competitor. You can work with celebrities, even celebrities within your industry. If you're B2B, there may be some really famous people. And then working with other strong brands. So how do you know if you have a good partnership? I think there's three, three good questions. One is, are they serving the same segment and type of customer that you do? And together, you can enhance that customer's experience. The second is, can you test that combo relationship with, with customers and actually even do some type of a pilot before fully committing? And you know, it may make sense. The third thing is, it may make sense externally, but do you share similar values so that you can actually execute on the deal? And uh, by the way, for that orange juice on the cereal, I, I think they're serving a very different segment than I'm in. So anyway, I'm going to hand this now over to my dear friend and business partner, Tom Spitali. Thanks a lot, Mary. It's no secret that inflationary times may be some of the best times to actually take a price hike. Sales reps finally have a reason when customers say, why are you doing this? Why are you raising rates? So worldwide, Companies are rushing out to their customers to take price hikes, citing increased supply costs, increased labor costs. And let's face it, history shows that some of them are getting a little extra kicker to boost profits. That's why it's so curious and quirky to see what happened to Netflix when they took their recent price increase. In case you haven't heard, Netflix raised their rates 10% in January and almost immediately lost 200,000 subscribers. Many shareholders panicked and dumped their shares. Netflix lost $54 billion in market cap in one day. What happened and what lessons can be learned from this? Well, the first lesson is when you're deciding if and when you're gonna take a price hike and how much, you have to have a clear-eyed view of what stage 
of your product or service lifecycle that you are in. If you're in an early growth, hot stage, customers are less price sensitive and more willing to pay more. The opposite is true if you're in a mature lifecycle stage, more price sensitivities there. We think that Netflix may have been fooled by the pandemic as to what stage they were actually in. During the pandemic and lockdown, people were taking the entertainment dollars that they typically spent outside the home and spreading it across a number of different streaming services. So Netflix saw subscriber growth, increased usage rates, probably thought, hey, we're still in a hot growth phase. But when restrictions were lifted and people kind of went back to their old patterns, it revealed a streaming industry that is probably much more mature than Netflix thought. It has some of the hallmarks that Mary and I teach in our Caltech uh, pricing course that are the signs, the warning signs of high price sensitivity. It's market fragmentation with many different and new suppliers. You've got Hulu and YouTube and Amazon, uh, Apple TV, and many, many more. There's also another hallmark of high price sensitivity here besides market fragmentation. There's low perceived differentiation between the providers. And there is also just a low perceived risk of switching from one supplier to the other. We think that many of the Netflix defectors probably said to themselves, I've got plenty of shows queued up on Apple TV. I can let this Netflix subscription go. So you've got you've to know before you take that price hike, where are you at in your product or service lifecycle? Second thing that you've got to, the second lesson here is you need to have a clear communication strategy and message that explains to customers why you're taking the price hike, especially if you're in that mature price sensitive phase. Now, Mary talked a couple of months ago about the beautiful job that Amazon Prime did and communicated a similar level price hike. Amazon talked about many customer appreciated features of their offer, not the least of which was that they were rolling out uh, same day delivery in more geographies. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't hear one person complain about Amazon Prime's price hike. Netflix's communication around their price hike was much more generic, less exciting, less differentiating. They simply cited higher costs to develop content and costs to develop video games. Okay, this was not enough for the 200,000 subscribers to say they were willing to pay a couple of extra bucks a month. So there you have it, the two lessons. Know what stage of the life cycle that you're really in before you decide if and how much of, of a price hike to take and clearly communicate your differentiating value when you take that price hike. That's what companies are doing that are successfully taking their price hike, and they're also getting that little extra kicker that I talked about for their value add. Speaking of value add, I'm gonna turn it over to the chief idea guy, Ryan Matamore. Hey, Tom, well, well, thank you. Welcome, everyone. So my curious and quirky question for, for the audience is to say, and this is true, why would an association, a national association in the United States, create a, a contest among their top members, a $40 million prize pool for their top members that they could share in for their social media influence and presence? Okay, I've sort of answered the question in a way, but who has done that? 
Well, if you were watching uh, TV last weekend, you may or may not know, it's been, you know, the PGA, right? The PGA has now a contest or a fund. They call it the Players Impact Program. And it's $40 million was the fund last year. This year, it'll be $50 million. And the top 10 media influencers share that 40 or $50 million prize pool, right? So this year, last year, whatever, could you imagine who won? I think you probably can, even though he only played one tournament. He got the $8 million first prize. That was Tiger Woods. Second place was Phil Mickelson, $6 million. Justin Thomas, who won the, won the PGA this last weekend, got $3.5 million. And coming in at number 10, the last award winner was Bubba Watson. He got $3 million. And, you know, your first reaction is to say, why are you giving these guys this money? They're multimillionaires already. What's the deal here? And the deal here is the PGA, it's both an offensive and defensive strategy. The defensive part of it is you may or may not know, there are tours around the world now, the Premier Tour and others, you know, in Asia and the Middle East. And these tours and tournaments will pay appearance for the largest, the most important golfing celebrities to appear there. The PGA does not pay those appearance fees. So that's one way, right? That's one way to have a defensive strategy. On the plus side or the offensive side, if you think about it, it's a way for the PGA to use their players to really promote the game, right? So it's a, it's an interesting strategy. Now, how do they determine who the greatest social media influencers are? Who has the greatest social media presence? You need some objective way to do that. And the PGA has, in my opinion, done a fantastic job. They use five different metrics to do this. So one, an obvious one is what? Google searches, right? How many times does the player's name appear in a Google search? That's number one. Number two, and they created, they added this one because they don't want players uh, gaming it, right? If you did something nefarious, you'd get a lot of mentions, but you don't want to promote that. So they have what's called the Q score. You probably have heard of that. This is used in the entertainment industry to understand the actors or celebrities' familiarity with an audience and also do they have a positive or negative image. The third metric they use is from a company called Meltwater Media. Meltwater Media was formed in 2001, Oslo, uh, Norway, and they, um, they scan a billion mentions a day and, and are able to you know, rank based on those. The fourth one, which is really interesting, the fourth metric system is from Nielsen. And, and this is called the Nielsen Impact Score, right? And so Nielsen, as I'm sure you know, is, you know, the radio and TV rating service. And so they are assessing national exposure for these players. They're assessing also their local media impact. And now as part of their service, they have, they're assessing social media engagement. And that could be, you know, how many followers they have and how, what the engagement rates are, right? And what's interesting about this one in particular is that uh, Nielsen is now selling this service to colleges and universities. And so if you have a high impact score, a Nielsen impact score, why would you buy that? Well, if you think about it, it's for recruiting right? It's recruiting. So they can go to, you know, great athletes, the, the ones they want to recruit and say, yeah, we have this high impact score. You should come to our university or college. Now, why does the athlete care? Well, this is obviously NIL, right? Uh, name, image, and likeness. And so they, the players recognize that if they're at a, a famous university, their name, image, and likeness monies could be that much greater. You know, earlier this week, I went to a Dartmouth alumni event and the football coach uh, Buddy Tevens, who's an unbelievably great guy, was talking about how, how rough it is out there now in recruiting. The University of Texas now has a fund, right? They will guarantee all the recruits that matriculate at University of Texas 
$150,000, the linemen, the offensive and defensive linemen, $150,000 each, that will be guaranteed. So it's getting rough out there, right? The fifth uh, index they use, and in some ways, this might be the most fascinating of all, this is a company, it's called the MVP Index. And they make a very interesting point. When you're watching something on TV, right? About 23% of that watch experience, viewing experience might be for the ads, right? And 77% of that viewing experience is what? It's the event itself. That's why you tuned in. And so they have very sophisticated algorithms now to, to assess the impact of logos and brands in the events themselves. And so obviously we see golfers with all the patches all over themselves. We see the, you know, the basketball floors branded, right? We see the, uh, the arenas branded, et cetera, et cetera. And they have different metrics to uh, assess the impact of that branding. One of the best examples of this was Aaron Donald, right? He you know, won the Super Bowl with the Rams and he's holding up the, the Super Bowl trophy and his, you know, his, he's got gloves on that, that, that are branded with Nike, right? So that's a huge impact right there. Okay, so what's the implication for the listeners here? Well, if you work for a very large organization, we, you probably know that your organization is fighting the talent wars. You're trying to recruit the biggest and best talent, right? And your organization is also trying to get share of mind for greater sales. And so I'm wondering if in the future we're going to see these kind of contests for employees to build their social media presence, A, to promote the nation and B, obviously, to promote themselves, but as a way to make more sales for the organization and, and improve their image. So that's that's my question for you. If you work for a large organization or maybe you're a consultant organization, this is something you should, should now be considering as, as odd and strange and weird as it is. Okay. Uh, thanks, you guys. I'm going to turn it over to our OD guru, Ginny. Thank you, Brian. So uh, my curious and quirky question is, does your Mayo need a mission statement? And this was the title of an article published in the Wall Street Journal on May 20th. The article begins by asking, what is the point of mayonnaise? At one of the world's largest consumer products companies, it is no longer about sandwiches and potato salad. Ads for Hellman's that once focused on taste, spreadability, and ingredients are now focused on a mission to curb food waste. I simply cannot make the connection. The brands with purpose strategy has become a centerpiece for Unilever since Alan Job took over as CEO in 2019. He defines purpose as having a point of view on issues important to the planet or society. I again cannot make the connection. For me, the purpose of mayo is to be a tasty condiment on my roast beef sandwich or a key ingredient in my chicken salad. Somewhere, somehow, the real purpose of my beloved real mayonnaise has been lost. So let me bring us back to what a purpose-driven company really is and why it is so important. The purpose of purpose. Clearly defining your company's purpose helps your organization understand what you are trying to achieve. In addition to motivation, it allows for independent decision-making, alignment, and goal tracking. Very simply put, purpose is the North Star that guides the business strategy. Additionally, research has proven that as companies demand more out of their employees, Top talent is demanding more from companies in terms of purpose and engagement. The key driver of attraction attributed to companies' sense of purpose. 
And there's more business upside. Companies perform better if they have a clear sense of purpose. Purpose-driven companies make more money, have more engaged employees, and more loyal customers, and are even better at innovation and transformational change. So what does purpose look like in practice? It helps to start with a clear, shared definition of purpose. Purpose is an organization's aspirational reason for being beyond profits alone. It answers the question, why? It is why an organization matters to people. It is why the organization exists. The key to being a successful purpose-driven company is to make it clear how the purpose connects to the business strategy and drives profits. A great example of this is CVS Health. In 2014, what was then called CVS Pharmacy became the first U.S. drugstore chain to stop selling tobacco products. CVS realized that tobacco did not align with its purpose, and its purpose is helping people on their path to better health. CVS just didn't remove tobacco from its stores. It launched several programs to help smokers quit. The move resulted in 95 million fewer cigarette packs sold and a 4% increase in nicotine patch purchases. While CVS lost $2 billion in annual cigarette sales in the first year of its new policy, the pharmacy sales jumped. Living its purpose also led CVS to a $69 billion merger with Aetna and significant stock gains. So as I previously mentioned, the key to being a successful purpose-driven company is to make it clear how the purpose connects to the business strategy and drives profits. This is not the case with our Mayo example. In fact, Terry Smith, the chief executive of FundSmith, one of Unilever's largest shareholders, was quoted as follows. A company which feels it has to define the purpose of Hellman's mayonnaise has, in our view, clearly lost the plot. Unilever is obsessed with publicly displaying sustainable credentials at the expense of focusing on the fundamentals of the business. So while I love mayo on my roast beef sandwich, I do not expect this condiment or any other condiment to save the planet. So now I'm going to hand it over to Hari. Thank you, Ginny. All the talk of food has already made me hungry. But here I I do want to, luckily this time, I'm not talking about feta cheese pasta from TikTok. That would have been triple whammy on food. I want to get a little deeper into what is happening with Twitter. Just to replay back, as you know, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, stepped down and there was a succession to a gentleman called Parag. And Jack Dorsey was actually one of the few CEOs. He was a dual CEO. He was a CEO of Twitter as well as Square which is now rebranded as Block uh, with cryptos and the Bitcoins, everything in focus. Now, I have rarely seen founder transitions, the first transition from the founder to professionals to be smooth. So Twitter actually has two dimensional problem right now. One, it has growth tapered off. The number of subscribers have tapered off. They have not been able to add new revenue streams. They have not been as socially engaging as a TikTok or, or, or an Instagram. But at the same time, the transition from a founder-led company to a professional-led company, I think has had bell weather. And I, it always bothered me. I kept thinking, would Elon Musk continue to be as hostile to take over Twitter if Jack Dorsey was still the CEO and the numbers still didn't pack up? Because it didn't happen for a long period of time. So I think there is something there in the succession 
that triggered this entire battle for who controls the company. And I genuinely think the board got the succession wrong because it doesn't meet the point where the challenges of the company have overgrown to a point where it does need an overhaul. Now, Twitter had, I would say, four directional options. One, it could be an influencer like TikTok. It missed the entire bus on what we call as the creator economy. It did not, it was not able to monetize content for the people who created, nor was it able to integrate with other sources. For example, I can order food through TikTok if I like a dish and they have a tie with Grubhub. So Twitter is a standalone, almost like what they call it as a town square, but it has not been able to drive integrations across. The example I think Elon Musk gives is the WeChat model, the super app thinking like Grab does it or WeChat does it. So they haven't gone the super app direction as well, but that, that is another opportunity or a missed opportunity. It also missed the bus on payment services. You know, in many, in many countries around the world, chats, social media channels also have payment services. I, can, I should be able to tweet $10 to let's say Tom as a currency. So they've not gone down the path of Venmo's, they've not gone down the path of PayPal's or even, for example, WhatsApp, which allows, you know, or an iMessage of Apple that allows what we call as banking transactions. The last one really is they've not even gone the enterprise route. If you look at what Facebook has done with its product, they have Workplace by Facebook. So it's an enterprise version of Facebook at work. So it enables social sharing, collaboration, rooms, live chat, et cetera, and it's hugely successful because it needs zero training. We all grown up on Facebook. So when I encounter that inside the company as an enterprise product, people take on to it really fast. Now, given all of this, I was looking at some of the numbers as to where does the influence with Twitter really lie? On a daily basis in America, an individual spends 45.8 minutes, 45 minutes per day on TikTok. As compared to YouTube, 45 minutes, Twitter, 34 minutes, Snapchat, 30 minutes, Facebook, 30 minutes, Instagram, 30 minutes, and Reddit, 23 minutes. So in terms of time spent, it's not too bad. But for the time that people spend on the channel or on the platform, it doesn't seem to convert itself into revenue that an Instagram is generating with far lower usage rates or attention spans. And therefore, is and then there is this entire battle of billionaires, right? So again, as I said, if Jack Dorsey was still the CEO, would Elon Musk still continue to be a hostile takeover person? I would doubt it. So the path forward for Twitter is actually not so much to the product thinking, but really what kind of CEO and leadership do they need? Because I think that is the starting point of the turnaround that the company needs at this point in time. So with that, let me bring all my colleagues back. And while I bring them back, I do want to make a very quick comment to Mary saying, Mary, I'm not, I'm probably in, in the same club as you are in terms of orange juice and, and cereal, and probably to some extent in the sense that it almost sounds like pineapple on a pizza. We actually had a class, Tom and I had a class and we asked them, there were about 30 people there and we asked the question just to road test it. And a couple of them laughed and said, if I was hungover or if I just couldn't find the milk. So, you know, maybe that's part of the story is, uh, and somebody said they actually put um, orange juice on their on their ice cream. And that sounds pretty good. Um, I also want to give a shout out to Sandra Long, who's just given us some wonderful comments. So um, thank you very much. Ginny, I have a question for you. So you kind of opened the, the can of worms. You have purpose. Can you also just quickly demystify or explain the difference between purpose, mission, and vision, please? Yeah, and this is something that everyone always gets confused. And, and you know, no matter what client I'm, I'm working with, I, we always have to kind of review this and kind of straighten out the difference. So 
So as we said, that the purpose is why. Why does the organization exist? And then vision is really the the destination. Where does the company see themselves going in the future? And how will they know when they get there? So I call that the vision is kind of the, the destination, if you will, thinking of it that way. And the, the mission is, what, what is the organization? What are they? And, you know, it's, it's really connected basically to the strategy that also has to align to the vision and the mission. So all of those three things really have to align. And it's, it's really important because you find that uh, organizations without a North Star, they tend to stray. And, and it never fails that within the organization, people think they know what the purpose is. They think they know what the mission is. But when you ask them and you get you get 10 people in a room with from the same company and you ask them that question, you will get guaranteed 10 different answers. So this is something very important to, to certainly align to all those three things. And it sounds, you know, when people hear mission and vision, it sounds very, you know, oh, my gosh, that's just the plaque on the wall. But but it's real stuff. And, and it's, it's critical to the success of an organization. Thank you, Ginny. Tom, I actually have a question for you. You know, when you talk about Amazon Prime, there is a Prime subscription, but then there are also, in addition to free movies, there are movies that I have to buy, right? So there's a second layer of revenue after Prime membership. Whereas when you bring that model to Netflix, when you pay $17 or $19 a month, you get access to this 3 million creative content that 99% of which, which I do not see at all. Right. So is there an opportunity for Netflix to go pay-per-view? So rather than a monthly membership, I should be able to I should have an account, but I should be able to pay for individual movies or series that I buy. Could that be another tier of subscription for them? Well, from reading the press from what's going on with this debacle that they face, it actually is something that's in the consideration set. Maybe not necessarily pay for extra content but they are talking about an advertising supported model. So providing a lower tiered, lower priced membership uh, to Netflix, if you're willing to watch some ads. And I imagine Hari that they're probably thinking about everything, including you know pay for some kinds of uh, premium content. I mean, when you think about Amazon Prime, it's not just about Amazon's videos, you know? It's that prime membership that gives you a whole host of benefits. It's really hard to compete with it. And, and, and really, the pricing is not that much different between Netflix and Amazon Prime. And you get, you know, the free delivery, the same, same day delivery. And, and, and again, as, as Mary spoke about and I alluded to in my talk, they've communicated those benefits really, really well. You know, the whole thing with, with, with Netflix is, to me, what I think, and it got cut for time in my talk, but you asked, so I'm going to kind of lay it out here, is I think their problem is that they're trying to monetize 100 million households that are pirating their Netflix membership. 100 million households across the world are borrowing somebody else's credentials. And maybe this was a ill-fated, wrong-headed way to try to, to right that wrong. Nonetheless, you can't blame them for trying to monetize that. They've got to fix that problem somehow. Perfect. So... Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining today. We appreciate it. I always, in a fun way, say that this is the best 45-minute 
MBA course that anybody can attend, right? So, so I thank all of my course leaders. As you know, you can, on the top left of your screen with the QR code, you can add all of the events that we do in one click to your calendar. The next event is on 17th of June. We hope to see you again there. So if you have any questions, please do write to us at execed at caltech.edu. And we are from Caltech Executive Education. We help curious leaders change the world. Have a great day, everyone. And on behalf of everyone on the show and from rest of the colleagues, we're wishing our colleague, Tom, a happy golfing weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Why didn't Brian mention me on the PGA thing? Curious and Quirky is a LinkedIn live event with course leaders from Caltech Executive Education. This is a fast-paced, five-minute-per-speaker, oh yeah, take on what's hot in marketing, innovation, transformation, future of work, platform strategy, design, and agility. Brought to you by the course leaders from Caltech Executive Education.